Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Thank you for being here to spend your morning with us. You seem awake and lively. If you lose steam with that loss of an hour, there's hot coffee around the corner. You can sneak out and try to get some. And God, as our chief shepherd and our great God, we look your direction as we open scripture and we say the same. God, our hearts are yours. God, our minds right now, our attention is yours. Would you speak to us, God? Again, so thankful that we approach not an angry judge or someone that we're uncertain of what we'll receive. We approach a father. And so, Father, we come to you saying, speak to our hearts and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it to the book of Galatians chapter 4, and I'll invite the Boyds back up, uh, John and Michelle. John serves on our elder team, and they're going to read this morning's passage to you from Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Tell me, who you desire, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For those are the two covenants, the one for Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was uh, born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. You know, they say that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who love the 1980s movie, The Princess Bride, and those who don't. And although I find myself pretty securely seated amongst that second group, I'm not the biggest fan of it, I did, however, find myself this week thinking through one of the famous one-liners from the movie. It's something that said right after one of the main characters, his name is Vinzini, or Vizzini? Anyways, he says for the fifth time, I heard an oh boy over here, that's the group that love the 1980s movie, The Princess Bride, but, but where he, for the fifth time, he makes the statement that something is inconceivable. And it's the response of one of the other key characters that I love so much. It's Nigo Montoya who replies and says, I do not think it means what you think it means. Which is something I found myself thinking about a lot as I worked through this passage. You remember, as I mentioned last week, that we've reached this pivotal turning point in the message to the Christians in the region of Galatia. It's a turning point, really, you could say, in the thematic arc of Paul's message. He's been telling us all that we have in having Christ And now the theme is beginning to shift. It's a turning point also, though, in Paul's tone and appeal. Because up until this point, you remember that he's given this theological appeal where he's pushing for grace. 
and for them to push away from the legalistic pressure that these Judaizers are bringing, who are telling them that you need to first become a functional Jew in order to then approach God, hoping to receive grace. And so he gives this theological dissertation, but it shifted last week, you remember, to a personal appeal where he speaks to them as a pastor and as a spiritual parent. And now today what he does is he gives a final historical appeal based on the Hebrew scriptures, using an ancient story to paint one final allegory, a portrait and appeal to them to embrace the gospel of grace and to reject the legalistic tendency that existed in their hearts, the legalistic tendency that was being applied with pressure from the outside. And it begins with Paul making a statement. Did you notice it in verse 21? where he says, I do not think it means what you think it means. Where he says in verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Another translation, tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you even read the law? Still another, tell me, you who want to be under the burden of the law, are you not aware of what the law says to you? Still another translation, those who want to be controlled by Moses' laws should tell me something. Are you really listening to what Moses' teaching say to you? Or another translation, loose paraphrase, I do not think it means what you think it means. You see, the law is great for what it does, but you have to be clear on what it does. Does the law justify me? Is it something that through following it that I earn brownie points for? Or does the law expose me? Not just my actions, but even the intentions of my heart. And in doing so, does it expose then my need, my deep need for a savior? Remember, Paul's already asked the question in his argument in the book of Galatians. He says, does the law and grace contradict each other? Does Moses contradict Abraham, the promise that God gave to Abraham that he received through faith? And that promise, remember, was grace. That promise was that he would have accounted righteousness applied to him, that God looked at him. And it's not that he had worked so hard to earn his right standing with God, but because of his faith, God accounted it to him. Remember, they don't contradict each other because the covenant of grace is complemented by the law because it shows us our deep need for grace. And both those two covenants, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. They, the law and grace, are not at odds with each other unless you fail to clearly see and understand the purpose of the law, which is the other question that then Paul asked and answered. Well, what then is the purpose of the law? And remember, we talked about it. It's, it's a mirror and it's a tutor. It's a mirror that reveals the real me to me, and it's a tutor that leads me to Christ, the answer for my deep need, but it's not a scoreboard. It's not a scoreboard that I point to in order to show God and others that I'm winning based on my own merit. Remember, Paul explained our relationship to the law already in Galatians, and he described it as a death. Do you remember in chapter 2, verse 19, where he says that, for I through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. Think that through. When Paul measured his life against the law's perfection, its holy standard, he says it crushed him, it killed him. He died to the law, and when he did, he said he was made alive to God. And you have to do it in that order, don't you? This is the gospel. Remember, this is what he warned them of in chapter one, where he said, people have come perverting the gospel. It means to reverse it. They reverse the gospel's natural order. And the order of the gospel is that God has loved and given himself for us and that we then respond. 
They've reversed it and said, now you need to love him and do something for him so that he then responds to you. That's a perversion, a reversal of the gospel. It has to be in the order that Paul is saying here, that I have to die to the law and then be made alive to God. I have to die to the law first to let go of my performance mentality in order to live a whole new life. Because I can't be justified by living under the law, assuming that I'm going to find life there, because what I'll find in the law is a crushing weight and death sentence. And here, the followers of Jesus there in Galatia are running back to the law, assuming that they're going to find life there rather than death. And in Galatians 4, 21, he says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? I do not think it means what you think it means, he's telling them. I love how Luther wrote about the law in his Galatians commentary. He said it this way. He said, sin is not canceled by lawful living, for no person is able to live up to the law. The law reveals the guilt, fills the conscience with terror, and drives men towards despair. Much less is sin taken away by man-invented endeavors. The fact is, the more a person seeks credit for himself by his own efforts, the deeper he goes into debt. Nothing can take away sin except the grace of God. We find no rest for our weary bones unless we cling to the word of grace. You see, in our text this morning, Paul uses one final illustration as an exclamation point at the end of his argument and appeal to the church in Galatia, the, the churches, the followers of Jesus there. He uses a true story from the book of Genesis that begins in chapter 16 and ends in chapter one, 21, and he utilizes it as this final illustration, an allegory that's meant to present to you the bondage of legalism compared to the freedom that's found and experienced in grace. So here's our ancient history lesson, a reminder for this morning. So, so put your mind back in time to the book of Genesis, because early in the narrative, you're introduced to a guy. Remember, because the narrative in Genesis hones in on Adam and Eve, and then it goes broader and broader very quickly, and then it goes way back in narrow to follow the specific life of an individual by the name of Abram. Abram is a pagan man who God calls out of his country, whose heart begins to be seen as pure, believing in one God. And God speaks to him and calls him to leave everything that was familiar to him and to choose a life of faith. And when he began to do that, God's making this amazing promise to him, saying, if you're willing to do this, what you'll find is you're going to find that I'm going to give you a land and descendants and a singular descendants in your future that I will bless the whole world through you. It's speaking of Jesus. And if you push fast forward, the story seems to imply to us that Abraham's wife, Sarah, believed that God would fulfill his promise to give Abraham a son and that he would father a massive nation. But Sarah in the book of Genesis begins to wonder if that child would come from her own aging body. It's recorded for you in chapter 16, verse 2, where here's what Sarah says. She says, see here, the Lord, Yahweh, has prevented me from having children. She must have thought, well, God's no liar. And so perhaps the fulfillment of his promise will come through different means than we initially had thought or assumed. 
After all, God made that promise and it had been 10 years of them waiting and they weren't getting any younger. Abram, which his name means the exalted father, and you picture him moving from his homeland into new territories and constantly introducing himself. What is your name? It's Abram. Oh, exalted father, is your family here with you? Can we meet your family? Where are they? Looking over his shoulder. And there he stood only by his wife. It was a mockery. It was a piece of shame that was a part of their life. He's 86 years old, and he's still not a father. And, and Sarah's just 10 years younger than her husband. And in chapter 18 and verse 11 of the book of Genesis, it says this of her, that she was long past the age of having children. So Sarah makes the, the logical, reasonable, seemingly, suggestion, well, then maybe we need to come up with another option. And her suggestion is, well, then take my young Egyptian handmaiden. And I'll just tell you here candidly, there's nothing about this story that I really like very much. And someone suggesting that, you know, this is actually culturally acceptable, doesn't change the fact that this is a terrible suggestion and it, uh, it involves objectifying a young woman and using her as a surrogate, whether she was along for the ride or not. And yes, Abraham will later in the story marry her, taking her into his home as his own wife. However, you'll find in the story he'll later discard her and the child when tension, issue, and jealousy arises in their home. After Sarah has her own son, and Ishmael, the older brother, as the book of Galatians here references, begins to persecute or mock Isaac, that's when she put her foot down and said, cast out the bondwoman and her son. Get them out of here. In the Genesis narrative, it says that all of that grieves Abraham. Let me read it to you in verse or chapter 21 of the book of Genesis. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. Other translations, this grieved Abraham distressed him greatly. It was a very difficult thing for Abraham. Another translation, Abraham worried for them. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the latter, because of the bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I'll also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed." You see, in this story, we're told that God hears the woman and her son cry out for help. It's beautiful and powerful what happens in that moment because twice God's voice is heard speaking and responding to them, responding to them in this powerful way, providing for them and even making a promise to them that he would build nations through Ishmael. You see, although Paul will tell the same story that the author of Genesis records for us, the Genesis narrative gives additional information, and really what it gives is heaven's perspective on the whole thing, and God neither instructed them to do this nor was pleased with Abraham taking Hagar as his second wife. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, God condemns such practices. And although God will affirm the decision to have to, of Abraham to have Hagar and Ishmael sent away, God will go with them and promise to provide for them and protect them. And it plays out their narrative enough to know that God did just that after they departed. You see, this is a real story that Paul will use as an allegory here, an illustration. But the stories it's told in Genesis leaves us with a different set of emotions because Hagar is the one who's the victim in that story. But in Paul's use of it, he's utilizing the story to reveal something to us. It's a, ma a masterful allegory and indictment against these Jewish false teachers who are claiming that you must become a functional Jew before approaching God to receive grace, that you have to keep the laws and the customs and the feasts and the rituals. And if you do that, 
Well, then you now can find yourself in a place where you can have access to the good grace of God, but not before that. You see, in the minds of many first century Jews, they were right with God and safe because of their national Jewish heritage and identity as the sons of Abraham. But John the Baptist comes along and disagrees with that ideology completely. In Matthew chapter 3, he responds to the scoffing of the religious leaders when he's calling Jews to repentance and be baptized, and they scoff at him saying, we have Abraham as our father. We're not repenting of anything anytime soon. And do you remember, he responded to them saying that they were fooling themselves and that God could raise up sons of Abraham from the stones. It's Jesus who disagreed with this ideology who you remember as people again scoffed at him that Jesus would respond to the religious leaders. And he'd tell them that you are not sons of Abraham, you are sons of the devil. Your father is the devil because you're objecting, you're standing as an object in the pathway of what God is doing, bringing salvation to humanity, and you're mocking it. Your father's not Abraham, it's the devil. And here in Galatians, Paul is claiming that Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, disagreed with their ideology that we're right with God and safe because we're sons of Abraham. He's going to show them and us that they're not right with God and safe because of that national identity and heritage, because Abraham had two sons, one born into freedom while the other one was born into slavery. Paul's point here is going to be that it takes more than just Jewish heritage or strict adherence to the law to be a child of God. It takes the miraculous gift of grace through simple faith to be the child of God. You see, in the allegory Paul utilizes here, Abraham, the father of the multitudes, he represents God in the story, and all of humanity will find itself in one of two identities. Paul will present that the dividing line is not who your father is, though, as many had thought, but he's saying here it's really who your mother is. You see, in the story, although Isaac and Ishmael are both brothers and they are sons of Abraham, there are two important distinctions that Paul brings out between them. And the first distinction is that they have two different mothers, one who was a free woman and one who was a slave. Therefore, one was then born into freedom while the other was born into the identity of a slave, a servant. The second thing is that they were born under two very different circumstances. One was through miraculous means where Sarah, being far past the age of childbearing, would conceive and bring a son into the world. It's amazing. This is what the whole Christian narrative will follow that rhythm, won't it? Because it's through miraculous means that Jesus will be conceived. It's through miraculous means of grace that we will be born again. This is the rhythm and the pattern that you're going to find. However, on the other hand, there's another son. And the other one was not by supernatural means. The other one was had because they decided to test the old adage that God helps them who help themselves. And through very natural means, Abraham will go to bed with a younger woman who who was healthy and young and able to bear a son. You see, one came through God's miraculous provision, while the other one was through man's wisdom and effort. Look in your Bible again at verse 23, where it says that the son of the slave life was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise, but the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his own promise. Ishmael was a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. Isaac, as the latter half of verse 23 says, was God's own fulfillment of his promise. 
We could say that Ishmael was born through normal, conventional, natural circumstances. Isaac, however, was anything but that, wasn't he? It was anything but normal, conventional, or natural circumstances. It was against nature. It was unnatural what happened. It was supernatural. I love how the writer of Hebrews would say it in Hebrews chapter 11. He says, By faith Abraham herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a son when she was past the age, because she judged God faithful who had promised it. Therefore, from one man in him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. It's nearly 15 years after Abraham fathered Ishmael. Abraham's 100 years old when Isaac would arrive. Heaven itself says he was as good as dead when his son was born. And Sarah, his wife, well beyond the years when she could have carried a child in her her womb. Remember, she's not just old, but long before she was old, she was barren. I love that the Bible again and again points out that there's something supernatural that happens in this moment. You see, the illustration that Paul is using here is to present a contrast. Are you seeing the contrast between self-reliance and God-dependence? For our life and relational standing with God. The contrast is between self-reliance, what you can do to make it happen, to make God's promise be fulfilled, or someone who has God-dependence upon your life and right standing with God. You see, these Judaizers, by pushing people to work for their acceptance by God, are being as foolish as Abraham when he chose to take matters into his own hands and get in bed with someone else. And look at all the destruction that comes from it. In fact, they're more foolish than Abraham because they have the hindsight to look back and see that God would still provide through gracious and miraculous means what he had promised to give. And they're more foolish because they can look back and see the destruction that Abraham's effort had caused. One commentator, he said it this way. He said, their heart and approach to God is like Abraham and Hagar. And the fruit of their lives is like Ishmael, just more slavery. See, in the portrait that Paul is painting, Hagar and her son represent seeking salvation through effort to earn it and to receive it, while Sarah simply relies on salvation by God's gracious provision. And Paul tells you in verse 24 that he's using this story symbolically. And he elaborates saying these two mothers, they represent God's two covenants. The first covenant he attaches to human effort to receive God's promise in Abraham's actions with Hagar. And he says she is connected with Sinai, and that's the mountain where the Ten Commandments were given. And he said she's connected with Jerusalem, and that's where the law lived. Think of it, the the temple, the, the priest, the sacrificial system was all present there. But there's a second covenant to be identified with that he attached to the faith that received the gracious promise of God and Abraham's waiting with Sarah. So he connects Sarah to the Jerusalem above, to heaven itself. You see, Sarah represents all those who have learned that they cannot earn their salvation, that they've ceased from trying to earn or deserve it, and are instead found accepting it as the gracious miracle that it is. And just as Sarah then is our mother, if that's how we think in this illustration, then the heavenly city of God is our mother city. You see, she, Sarah, is whom we belong to, and it, heaven, is then therefore where we belong. That's what Paul is saying here. But remember, 
This is Paul's final piece of his appeal and argument. And his argument is that the law is a terrible master and that legalism is a vain and empty pursuit. And through this allegory, Paul presents to us, he makes it clear that as long as you identify with Ishmael, with the law, you will never be free. You'll always be a slave. You see, you cannot earn a change in your identity any more than he could earn or change his identity as he grew older. Ishmael would undoubtedly grow taller. He'd grow older, more mature even. Sure, all of those things, but it would never change what was true about him about who he is and what his identity was, he was a slave. You see, in the same way you may grow, you may say that you've changed, you may even mature, and we won't argue with that. While you're working diligently for years under the law, but the truth is, you will always remain a slave to the law because you cannot change your identity and relationship with it. Remember, the law is a mirror and a tutor, but it's not a scoreboard. You're still a son of Hagar if the law is what you're using to try to bring salvation into your life and make it a reality. You're still under the law a slave. You only have the identity of a son when the miracle of grace is your mother after laying down the works of the law. You see, Paul's letter to the Galatian churches has clearly taught us that you must choose to cease from your effort and embrace faith in the grace that's been given to you that reckons a new identity, that accounts a new identity, not accomplishes, that accounts a new identity to you as you take on the identity of the Prince of Heaven who exchanged his identity for yours. Jesus, who was treated as an enemy, so that you could be received as a son. The problem is we've agreed that like the Galatians, some of us might have legalistic pressures outside of ourselves. Most of us have a little legalist living inside of us. And all of us have an enemy that wants to rob us of our freedom and joy that we've discovered in the grace of God and is trying to push us to place us back under the law, enduring the harsh and empty pseudo-gospel of legalism. And Paul is speaking against this. And Paul even asked the question, well, then what needs to be done to the legalist? And he answers that question as he quotes from Genesis chapter 21 In verse 30, where Sarah says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. You see, it's a very clear way of Paul saying, get the legalism out of your church. Listen, please. It's a clear way of saying, get legalism out of there. You see, if salvation comes by grace through faith in the work of Christ on the cross, then we should not be willing to tolerate salvation or Christian living that's based on our good works and great effort to earn. And if we're to cast it out, then I would suggest that we start by casting out that tendency in our own hearts first. Oh, yes, I think it's important that that we externally protect our families, that we protect our church from the bondage that legalism perpetuates. But we must start by crucifying the little legalist that exists inside of each of our hearts to be sure that the gospel that we preach to ourselves and to others is the gospel of grace. And I'll tell you, in my own life, the little legalist doesn't die easy. He's typically crucified many times over. 
My friends, the problem is that works-based righteousness, it is idolatrous blasphemy. I am profaning God and his goodness towards me in Christ, making myself and my own effort what I believe is worthy of praise. And I'm saying that Christ died in vain because I didn't need him to. My friends, for some of us, we found that we can turn our whole Christian experience into the same rat race environment that exists in every other area of our life. And it's soul crushing when we do it where we live our whole lives constantly concerned about how we're perceived and trying to do our best to earn and deserve the admiration of God and of others, where everything we do, we start to think is maybe just for show, to make noise, to turn heads, to earn your place and recognition. And when you live that way, you're unable to relax for a moment because of the crushing weight and pressure that you carry. And then you find yourself unable to rejoice with others because you resent their success and blessing. And then you find yourself unable to even be human with others, to ever be vulnerable or real, because you have to keep up an appearance constantly. Oh, stop and remember, like, take a deep breath. Remember that every other religion leaves you under a crushing weight of pressure to do everything that you can to get a distant God to notice you, but not Christianity. It presents a God who loved us so deeply that he's drawn to us. He came to us to suffer with us and for us. The essence of every other religion is advice, whereas the essence of Christianity is essentially news. Not a list of requirements of what you must do to reach and to please God. It's news, past tense of what God has done for you that you are simply to believe and embrace by faith and experience the great blessing of grace. There's an enormous difference between news and advice. I need to embrace the good news of Jesus, not just attempt to adhere to good advice or written requirement. See, in my own life, sometimes I have to just stop myself and intentionally step backwards to make sure that I'm not making the gospel into something that it is not. Because something inside of me seems naturally determined to turn the gospel into good advice, to make it into requirement versus news. And I don't know if it's rooted in pride in my life that I do this. Pride because I want to earn it and to feel good about myself, or I don't know if it's rooted in fear. Fear that you and I, we know that we haven't earned or deserved it, and we don't like that vulnerable space. But if you depend upon what you do in order to feel confident that you can approach God because you have his favor, then you're saying that Jesus didn't need to die. My friends, in Christ, we are sons, but we are in danger of operating our whole lives with the mindset of a hired servant. As author John Tyson eloquently put it, he said, Christianity is the only faith in the world that says you need to repent of doing good things for wrong motives. You need to repent of your religion. You know, there's much more that could be said here, including there's this beautiful little vignette where he grabs from an ancient prophecy from the prophet Isaiah that was speaking to people who were in bondage in Babylon and promising that there'd be fruit and life and joy on the other side of bondage, that he says the ultimate fulfillment of that is the birth of the church. Where now that the church and the move of God, the family of God, includes so many more than just the Jewish nation, 
where he points back and, and opens up that prophetic passage so beautifully. There's so much more that we could say here about this. But I'll tell you, I got it very early and cut a lot of stuff out of my notes for this reason. It's because I don't want to miss the shot to speak to you pastorally. You see, the things that I could additionally share to you, they're true, but I want to slow down and talk to you to kind of answer the same question that Paul is asking these people. Because you remember, we began our discussion with Paul's question at the beginning of this passage in verse 21, where he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Are you not thinking this through? What is it about it that's so appealing to you? Why do you keep finding yourself back under the law, finding this enticing? You see, it's a fair question for the followers of Jesus in the region of Galatia some 2,000 years ago, and it is an important question for us as modern followers of Jesus to ponder in the 21st century. Because if you're anything like me, what I found about myself is I'm like a car out of alignment that naturally pulls this direction, and then I feel like I'm fighting the steering wheel at times to keep myself from thinking legalistically, from thinking about law and pressure, about effort to earn I'm constantly fighting that because there's something inside of me that naturally, like a card of alignment, seems to pull in that direction. So I want to speak to you as we wrap up, just as a pastor, and ask that very question of why are we here, maybe drawn to, or why do we find that we pull towards legalism? And there's three things I want you to consider. The first is this, that, that I think that we're naturally are drawn to, we pull towards legalism because a system of effort to earn is all that we've ever known. Because this is it. Because anything other than this is incredibly foreign. You see, every system in seemingly every human society functions as an earning through effort transactional basis. A salary is not the only thing that we could use as an example of, of something that's earned in life through effort that you put out. A vocation or a position or a career that's growing is not the only example we could use. We could say relational credibility is the same. We could say trust is the same. You could point to other countries that look very different than our own and say, well, look at a communist country where the ceiling is set on maybe what someone could earn through effort. But look still about the relational credibility, about relationship status, about other forms of power that still are effectively earned through mass effort. This is the world system. Earning through effort exists in every area of our life, I would say especially here in America, in this culture. The American dream is that if you work hard, hard enough, you can become whatever you want. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's a really beautiful thing. That is an incredible thing. However, think about it. The message of this passage and really of all of Galatians is that you need to think and live as you already are. If you have faith in Christ, then you are already a beloved son. Your job is not to work and earn through effort. Your job is to think and to preach, and to believe, and to embrace an identity that's already been given to you. The greatest identity, the identity of a son. Remember, a full-fledged recipient, a co-heir with Christ, you belong again. You have the favor of God. You see, the contrast between these two paradigms is that one demands to live the American dream, that you can be whatever you work hard enough to become. One demands create your own identity and reality, Whereas the other invites you, doesn't demand of you, it invites you live in the reality and identity Christ already purchased for you. See, the reason I think we're pulled towards legalism is because it's the system that we've known. And in some ways, it's worked for us. 
This may in part answer the question as to why grace offends some people. Think about this. Some people fear grace. It makes them really uncomfortable because it feels terribly reckless. And and people believe, well, hang on, others are going to live wild and out of control. They're going to abuse grace is what they fear. But grace by faith dramatically changes us. And remember, we're not just receiving a truth. We receive a person and the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit inside of us so that we no longer, as the prophets had foretold, have external laws written on stone, but now internally he's reshaping our hearts, causing us to desire the things that God desires. By grace, through faith, dramatically changes who we are. We are, Jesus said, born again. We aren't just seeking to get away with what we want. We have a heart that is being reshaped by the incredible love and grace of God that's been given to us. We won't live like hell expecting heaven if your heart has been touched by the grace of God. If you've been caught by, by the massive swell, the wave that is the grace of God that pushes you forward in every area of your life. You see, some people, they're offended by grace because they fear it. Other people are offended by it simply because it's offensive. Because the grace of God is saying that I haven't and I couldn't earn God's favor and blessing. And I'm a self-made man. How dare you say that or suggest that? That that anything has ever been handed to me? I've worked for all of it. Do you see how deeply grace can offend our pride? Remember grace in the words of Dallas Willard. It's not opposed to effort. However, it forever stands in opposition to earning. Yes, grace enables me to pick up my cross, die to myself and follow Jesus. But do not think for a moment that I'm doing all of that so that I can earn for myself what Jesus has already earned and purchased, excuse me, for me. A position in place with God, the very favor of God extended to me. Why do we pull towards legalism? I think the first reason is because this is kind of the system we've known. The second reason I, I put before you is that legalism puts us in a seat of power rather than leaving us in a position of vulnerability. Legalism puts us in the seat of power rather than leaving us in a position of vulnerability. If you think of the legalist who's trying to earn God's favor through all of their human efforts as embarking on some sort of a noble venture or some noble cause that's worthy of of our praise and a a golf clap or two, then then can I burst that bubble for you? Because it's not a noble venture at all. It's a manipulative one. You see, one of the reasons we're drawn towards legalism is that there is perceived power attached to it. You see, if I work hard to earn my moral and positional standing with God, then I will inevitably be able to find someone else who's worse off than myself, someone who's putting less effort out than me, which leaves me with an arrogance and a sense of superiority to them. Simply put, we're drawn towards legalism because it fans the flame of pride that exists in our hearts already. We're not drawn towards it because we're noble and humble at all. Here's the thing, though. It's not just that it leaves me feeling superior to others seated above them. It's that it does the same thing in my position and relationship with God. We're now... I position myself in the seat of power, placing God as subservient to me, believing that God is now indebted to me and obligated to serve my wants and my requests and my needs because look God at the scoreboard. 
I'm winning. I've followed. I worked hard. I've done all of this. And if I compare myself to other people, way better than they've done too. The heart of legalism is a power grab, not just relationally, but also towards God. Author Timothy Keller, in his beautiful book that he wrote about Jesus' famous story, The Prodigal Son, Keller said this. He said, religious people commonly live very moral lives, but their goal, please hear this, their goal is to get leverage over God, to control him, to put him in the position where they think he owes them. The proverbial elder brothers obey God to get things. They don't obey God to get God himself in order to resemble him, love him, know him, and delight in him. We are like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son when our self-righteousness shields us from a deep understanding of our deep need for God. But we are also like the older brother when our self-righteousness is used like a sword that attacks God. You see, instead of going to God as a savior to rescue me, I go to God demanding that God, you owe me. Because look how hard I've worked. God, this isn't right the way you're treating me because look at all that I've done and accomplished for you. You see, so many of us, we've lived this. And we know by our own experience that that the older brother then lives constantly with distorted draw towards power that's twisted, but we also live with a terrifying fear of failure. Because if we fail, it shatters our view of ourselves as having earned our value and seat and position of power. And because our image in the sight of others, if we fail, it will be shattered too when they see our flaws and shortcomings. Oh, we're terrified of failure if this is how we live. But the gospel frees us from that. Because the gospel tells me I am completely lost and yet simultaneously infinitely valued and loved by God. Here's the sad thing for me personally is that I find that this exists in my heart when I hear these statements coming out of my mouth. When things are hard and and life hits an unexpected turn that's devastating, when, when things face, or when life faces obstacles, when I hear coming out of my voice statements like, rather than saying, God, have mercy, rather than requesting, have mercy on me, God. When instead I hear myself reminding God, I don't deserve this. When I find myself reminding God, you've blessed them that way. How come that family's healthy? How come they live in that neighborhood? How come their life is free from this challenge? How come they had their womb opened? Or how come they are stepping into their future with health? I find that this exists in my heart when I hear myself rather than crying out for mercy when life is broken in a broken world, when I look to God with demands saying, hang on, I got to remind you of a few things here, pal. Because I'm beginning to show that in my mind, we had a deal. And our deal was that I'll uphold my side. Do you hear? That's the old covenant, isn't it? That if you do these things, hey, hey, I've done my side, God. Let me tell you a thing or two. Don't you catch it in moments, that voice? Oh, when you do, humble yourself before God and say, God, I'm amazed that you'd still be gracious to me even when this is what's exposed in my heart. Would you change what's in my heart? Why do we pull towards legalism? I think it's because our whole world system is based on earning through effort. I also think it's because it puts us in a seat of power rather than leaving us in a vulnerable place. But here's the last thing I'll tell you is that I think we pull towards legalism because we're insecure. 
I think because we're insecure in our identity as God's adopted sons. It's what our parents told us when we were young. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Do you experience the comfort of knowing that God is your father? Or do you listen to the voice of the great deceiver who wants to rob you of that comfort as he robbed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Where he came to them and said, are you a slave or son? You're not his beloved, you're his hired servant. He's placed you here to look after his garden while forbidding you from enjoying it. You're not his sons, you're his servants. He's not your father, he's your master, he's your slave driver. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, tragically, they became the wrong, or I'm sorry, tragically, they became what they wrongly thought themselves to be. They abandoned their intimate place in a relationship with God to make themselves far less than the sons of God. They made themselves and said, slaves of sin. And we can do the same thing again and again and again and again. Think back one final time to that story that Jesus told of the prodigal son. And don't picture the older son as we just referenced him, but the younger one. The, other, the younger one who walked back towards the farm saying, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just please have me instead. Have mercy on me and allow me just to be a hired servant. A hired servant who would live outside of the home, who'd work for a day's wage, who'd work to pay off my debt and to pay back what I've taken from you and how I've wronged you. Sir, just give me a chance to repay the debt I've incurred. Sir, just give me time to re-earn my place and position in the family as a son. But you remember when he arrives in the presence of his father, as he begins to try to deliver that well-rehearsed speech that the father cuts him off. You see, so much of the time, although I turn to begin again the journey back home, I do so as if I'm returning to a father who demands an explanation. And I do that because I still believe that I have to earn his love. Because I still expect that I have to prove myself. That being safe and home and loved, that it's possible, but I don't know that I believe that it's promised. May I just say that you and I are yet to fully arrive at home if we are still muttering the words that we hear on the young prodigal's mouth, that I'm worthless, that I'm ruined, that I'm unlovable, that I'm nobody, but I could earn this back, God, just give me time. Because when you arrive at home, your heart no longer says those things. It is instead settled on your sonship, your value, your being loved. You see, the son's internal dialogue, it ceased when the voice of the father was louder than his own. You see, there's a great distance between turning to travel home and actually arriving there. And you know you've arrived safely at home when you trust the father's love enough to no longer see yourself as a second-class citizen as merely a servant who's permitted to enter the house. But instead, you begin to see yourself again as a son or a daughter who belongs in the home because of the confidence you have in your father's love for you. And the roots of that confidence are found in no place but the cross. That's the only place we find that kind of confidence where Jesus would be treated as an enemy so that we could be received as sons, 
where he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we could hear the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, legalist or legalism, it, it, it will either produce humility because of the soul-crushing weight of the law that we fail to uphold time and time again, but we might be humbled by the law, but please hear me, we will never be secure or safe. We will never have an ounce or a shred of confidence if we're crushed and humbled by the law. Or it produces the opposite. It produces a distorted confidence that's really just arrogance and pride because you can always find someone else to compare yourself to and say that they're worse off than I am. And you can always find yourself approaching God with a list of demands because you think that he owes you for your years of dedicated service to him. Do you see that there's maybe a distorted then confidence, but there's no humility? It's impossible to have both. The beauty, though, is that the gospel of grace, his unmerited favor gives to us, is that it frees us from the pressure to earn and win the approval of others, even God himself. And as I've told you before, an amazing aspect of the gospel is that it makes you both humble and confident, that you find yourself both humble and secure. And it's probably an unoriginal thought. I think it's a C.S. Lewis seed thought. But the byproduct of the gospel, let me close by just reminding you, is that it's transforming work in my life, is that I am, I'm found, when I'm living in the gospel of grace, I'm found to be a person who is internally secure because I have both humility and confidence, because I'm both humble and secure. Humble because I do see how sinful and broken I am and what it costs God to redeem me, to rescue me, but confident because I recognize that I don't have to earn or prove my value to him, because I have a God who so loved and valued me that he would become breakable and broken for me. You see, void of the gospel's transforming work in my life, I cannot be those two things simultaneously. I will either be humble or confident. Void of the gospel, humble people are rarely, if ever, confident because they have such low view of themselves. But it's because they're playing a comparison game that strips them of all of their confidence and because they're looking at the law that's meant to crush them as they look into a mirror that shows all of their flaws. Or just as a confident person is rarely, if ever, humble because they've worked hard to earn that confidence. Oh, they're proud, but they lack a shred of humility. But here's why it matters. It's because a humble person, a secure person, someone who's humble and secure is capable not just of receiving grace, but also of extending it. Whereas a humble person who lacks confidence and security is terrified and has to pull away from extending grace to others because they have too much to lose, because they just have too little security. And a proud person who lacks humility is not capable of extending and expressing grace because they see no need for grace in their own personal life, do they? Because they're too good to need it personally. So their unrealistic view of themselves creates an unfair reality for other people to try to exist in. They're not going to extend grace to anybody because I don't need grace. I've worked hard to become who I am. Why can't you just work harder? See, humble, a humble and secure person is capable not just of receiving grace, but of extending grace. Because humility and security are the byproducts of the gospel's work in my life. And that humility and security then gives me the ability and the internal Holy Spirit power to not only receive grace, but to dispense it freely to others I come in contact with. Because that humility leaves me with a realistic view of my own brokenness and therefore creates a gracious view of others who I understand are equal in need of grace and patience as I am. And that kind of security makes me capable of being wronged and mistreated and taken advantage of without sending me into a frantic state 
of panic and, and fight or flight and allows me to forgive others. And, and in forgiving others, it doesn't just challenge or rattle my depth of security because I find that security in Jesus and that's unshaken. And it allows me to be confronted with my own brokenness without rattling my own sense of identity as a beloved adopted child of God because I wasn't loved and adopted because of my good works in the first place. All the gospel leaves us humble and secure, humble yet confident. And when we're in that state, we can enjoy the grace of God. But when we're in that state, the world can also experience it with us. Such a beautiful gift. Such an otherworldly gift that we get to give as we receive it. My dear friends, Christ has set us free. And so let's thank him and worship him for that freedom. Jesus, we look your direction to thank you for the amazing freedom that is now our reality. The amazing freedom that you've gifted us with, that you have set us free, that you have adopted and embraced us. Set us free again from the little legalist in our heart. Set us free from the broken ideals and ideologies that we carry in our minds, the pressure that we feel every day in our lives. Set us free again, we pray. We want to receive the beauty of the grace that you've given to us. We want to live in the identity of beloved sons. What a gift to live there. But God, also, what a gift and privilege for us to operate there for us to live out of that place, that secure, humble place, and to allow others then to experience that grace as as we engage with our world around us. So God, I pray that that would be true of us. We turn your direction today, Jesus, to thank you for all that you've given to us and to receive it afresh. Radically transform our lives and set us free from the pressures that we deal with. But then commission us to give others a taste of that freedom and joy in life, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.